Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So let's give these families a little hand as they go off over here and get a certificate. I've always appreciated uh, Wildwood's commitment to church growth. We take that be fruitful and multiply command very literally around here. And uh, those three gals, we look forward to what God's going to do in their life in the years ahead. But please remember to pray for these families and, and pray for these babies. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them to the Gospel of Mark and chapter number 12 in the Gospel of Mark. If you happen to not have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you. You can take that Bible and in the end portion of it, turn to page 9 and you would be at Mark chapter 12. Now, as opposed to the early service when people were still waking up, I'm sure most of you now are fully awake, but I want to ask this question. How many people here like riddles and dilemmas? Let me see some hands. You like riddles and dilemmas. Okay. So I want to share two of them with you as we begin our time together. And as I share these riddles, these dilemmas, the answer to them will appear to be obscure and difficult. And while they're a little bit tricky, there is a true answer to them. Are you ready for the first one? All right, here we go. You are at the hardware store, and you overhear a person talking to the hardware store clerk. And the clerk says to this person, one will cost you 12 cents. Ten will cost you 24 cents. One hundred will cost you 36 cents. What is the person seeking to buy? One, 12 cents. Ten, 24 cents. One hundred, 36 cents. Got the answer? All right, here's the answer. The answer is they are seeking to buy house numbers to attach to their house. Each numeral costs 12 cents. So if you want the number one, that's 12 cents. If you want the number 10, that's two numerals, 24 cents. If you want the number 100, that's 36 cents. And you think, I knew that. I knew that. All right, so you, you, you got rolling on that one. Let me give you another one, okay? And you have to put on your thinking cap for this one. In this scenario, in this little riddle and dilemma, you have a farmer who is traveling with a fox, a sheep, and a small bale of hay. He comes to a river that only has a very small boat in it. The boat can only carry the farmer with one other thing at a time. But here's the dilemma and the problem. If the farmer leaves the fox alone with the sheep, the fox is going to eat the sheep. If the farmer leaves the sheep alone with the hay, the sheep will eat the hay. So here comes the dilemma, the problem, the riddle. How can the farmer get all three things across the river as well as himself in a safe manner? Now, while you're thinking about that, think about this. You can't take the hay across because that would leave the fox and the sheep there, and the fox is going to eat that sheep. You can't take the fox across first because that's going to leave the sheep and the hay. And you go, that's easy. You just take the sheep across first, all right? 
Well, if you take the sheep across first, you have to make a second trip. What do you bring? The fox, which would eat the sheep? Or you bring the hay, which the sheep would then eat? So what is the answer? Well, let me give you the answer. All right, here you go. Here's how it works. Number one, the farmer takes the sheep across the river, and then he comes back. When he comes back, he takes the fox across the river, leaves the fox there, but takes the sheep back to the first side of the river. And then he leaves the sheep there and takes the hay to the other side. So now you have the fox and the hay over there. Don't have any worry about anything disappearing there. No problem. And then he returns again back to the first side of the river and he brings the sheep back to the second side. And there you go. And you're going, I knew that in my heart. I knew that was the answer. Well, we're, we're sharing that with you today just as a little bit of a setup for a new little series we're going to do about a three-parter here called Tricks and Truth, Life Lessons from the Savior. And it comes from Mark chapter 12. And we're going to see here riddles and dilemmas being used. And this is a section that is both entertaining and intriguing. We're going to see in Mark chapter 12, the chief priests and the scribes and the spiritual leaders, and what they're really doing here is they are out to challenge Jesus' authority. And while we're not going to look at the details, but in verses 1 to 11, he tells a parable. It's the parable of the vine growers. And what he says is there's an owner of the vineyard who's way over out of the area, and then you have these vine growers who are to be caring for the vine. And what happens is that the owner sends representatives to the vine growers with certain instructions, and the vine growers kill the representatives. In fact, they kill several of them. And then eventually in the parable, what happens is that the owner sends his son, and the vine growers kill the son. And Jesus concludes the story by saying, what do you think the owner would do after he sent several representatives and they've killed him, and then he finally sends his son and they kill him? And the answer is that the owner will come and judge and execute all of the vine growers. Now, that's the story that he tells, the parable of the vine growers. Well, you'll notice in verse 12 that the spiritual leaders then, after having heard this parable, were seeking to seize Jesus, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. They weren't that thick. (laughs) They understood that the owner was going to be God and that he was saying, God has sent representatives and then finally God is going to send the son and you're going to kill him and guess what you're going to get is judgment. And so they understood that they in this story were the wicked vine growers. And so they don't feel like they can do anything initially, so it says in verse 12, they left Jesus and they went away. Now you know what they were going away to do, right? They were going away to brainstorm. They were going away to scheme. They were going away to get a little plot together. How can we get rid of Jesus? He's got us fingered here, and we want to find a way to get rid of him. And what's really interesting is this involves, as you're going to see as we work our way through it, all the religious party groups of the day. It involves the Pharisees, it involves the Herodians, it involves the Sadducees. And what they're doing is they're going to say, 
How can we come up with a plan to arrest Jesus and get rid of him? How can we come up with an excuse to do this? How can we trap him? And it would have been fun just to be in on that little brainstorm session that they had. In fact, I believe as they were doing it, you, you know, you can imagine there was idea after idea after idea suggested. But finally, they came up with the number one idea, and that was let's present him with a riddle, with a dilemma, with a trick. And here's going to be the idea, they said. No matter how Jesus answers, he's going to incriminate himself. We're going to trick him. We're going to trap him. And it's going to give us grounds to arrest him and to eliminate him. And what we're going to see, and we're going to look at some verses here in a minute, not only does Jesus come up with an ingenious answer to the dilemma, he's also going to present some life lessons, some life truth that we can learn from. So if you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 12, I want to read verses 13 to 17 and would invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read what happens. So they had been conspiring, and so verse 13, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but you teach the way of God in truth. So here's the question we have. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Now here's our plan. The first thing we want to do is take a little closer look at the trick, a little closer look at the dilemma, a little closer look at the trap that was set, and then we're going to look at the truth that Jesus taught here, the life lessons that are here that are valuable for you and for me. Now, just a little bit of background. You will notice there in verse 13 that two groups of people approach Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's important to understand that these are two groups who did not like one another at all. In fact, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the conservatives. They were the nationalists. They were totally opposed to the Roman government. They wanted the Roman government gone. On the other hand, the Herodians were the political leaders, the liberals. They were supporters of Herod, thus the name Herodians. Herod was the representative to Rome. And they were rather supportive of Rome because here was the idea. 
they thought, hey, rather than just saying let's get rid of the Romans, let's buddy up to the Romans, and then we have an opportunity to rule alongside of the Romans. So you have these two groups who are totally opposed to one another, who would always butt heads with one another, and they show up together, virtually hand in hand. And it says in verse 13, they came to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement. Very colorful verb here. It was used of trapping an animal in a snare. They were setting the snare. They were setting the trap for Jesus. And it's also interesting to me how they decided that their initial strategy would involve disarming Jesus a little bit through flattery. Uh, Did you notice that in verse 14? They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful. We know that you're a man of honesty. We know that you're a man of integrity. Oh, teacher, we know that you defer to no one, that you are not partial to anybody. Literally, in the original, it says this, we know that you do not look at the faces of men. You're saying, we know that you're not the kind of guy to play favorites. We know you're not the kind of guy who is influenceable by people in power. You're not that way. And oh, oh, teacher, we know that you teach the way of God in truth. We know that you're totally committed to truth. You know, I read that and I I just start smiling. I mean, here's the Pharisees and the Herodians saying, Oh, teacher, we know you're totally committed to truth. When they're not at all committed to truth, right? They have no interest in the truth. This has got nothing to do with the truth at all. And, And you can tell just by that lead-in a little bit, that something's coming here. You know, have you ever been asked a question by somebody when you know there's an agenda behind it? I've been asked some of those questions publicly, and you're thinking, I don't know what it is, but there's something behind this question. It's a loaded question that's coming at me. And you know, probably the most classic illustration of the loaded question is the one that goes like this. Yes or no, have you stopped beating your wife? You know, that's a loaded question. There's an agenda there. I mean, if you say, have you stopped beating your wife? Yes. You're admitting that sometime in the past you beat your wife. Yes or no, have you stopped beating your wife? You say, no. You're basically saying, well, I'm still doing it. I'm still still beating her. That's the kind of a scenario that's being presented to Jesus. That kind of a loaded Question, and here is what the loaded question is in verse 14. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, a poll tax was an annual tax. It was really called what's, what's called a head tax. And what that means is that if you were alive or you were a person, you got 
taxed for just being alive, for just being a person. And you may be thinking, well, I'm certainly glad that the infernal revenue, I mean, the internal revenue service hasn't discovered that one yet because they like taxes a lot, right? And how would you like to get that tax? Hey, if you're alive, boom, there you go. There's an annual tax. Oh, oh, you're alive. You have to pay a tax for being alive. Well, of course, this is a little bit of a trick. Let's look at this trick. Now, when they ask this question there, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Obviously, he could either say yes or he could say no. If he were to say yes, oh, they knew what would happen because the people hated the poll tax. The people hated the Romans. And if he had said yes, that would have offended the people. They would have uh, labeled Jesus as a traitor and as a collaborator with the Romans, and they would have rejected him as a potential spiritual leader. He could either say yes pay the poll tax, or he could say, no, you don't have to pay the poll tax. And they figured if he says no, if he chooses no, we got him right where we want him because now we can label him as a revolutionary before the Roman government. We will label him as an insurrectionist. And he would end up being executed by the Roman government because they had no toleration for that. There was no toleration from the Roman government. You went around telling people, do you know how to pay taxes? You know, your head would go. So what does Jesus do? Notice verse 15. He says, bring me a denarius. Bring me a denarius. Now, a denarius was a coin. It was the size of our dime. And a denarius represented a day's wage for the average person. But on those coins, you would have an image of Caesar. And some of them actually said on the denarius, Caesar is Lord. It was really a claim for deity regarding Caesar. So they were expecting, hey, yes or no, which one is he going to pick? And then he says, bring me a denarius. Now, you know that there was when someone took off to get one, There's a lot of whispering going on. There's a lot of anticipation. Hmm, I wonder wonder what his answer is going to be. I wonder what he's going to say. And then I have to believe when in verse 16 they bring one to Jesus and they hand it to him. You know, you can just imagine that everything got real quiet. What's he going to say? What's his answer going to be? Well, verse 16, Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? And they said to him, Caesar's. And then in verse 17, Jesus lays out the truth that he's going to teach coming out of this trick. Look at verse 17. Jesus says to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He's saying the fact that this coin has Caesar's image on it 
tells us it's Caesar's property. And he has the authority to make demands related to his property. And they, the Pharisees and the Herodians, were amazed at him. Greatly marveling. We never figured he'd come up with that answer. So that was the trick. What I want to look at, though, today is the truth that Jesus taught in the midst of that trick. And there's two prongs to this truth. And I, first of all, I want to identify what the truth was, the two prongs. And then as we come to the end of our time today, I want to apply the truth. So here's the first prong of the truth that Jesus was teaching. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What he was really talking about is our responsibility to government. We have a responsibility to government. And if you want to keep your finger in Mark 12, turn with me in the New Testament to Romans chapter 13. Because we have in the New Testament, more information given to us regarding our responsibility to government. Jesus said we have a responsibility to government. But the New Testament expands on what that means. And if you would, look at Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. It says there, every person who would be included in that, every person... Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority on planet earth except from God. And those which exist on planet earth are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority, governmental authority, has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And then if you let your eyes go to verse 4, he says something, he crafts a phrase that's very interesting. He says basically regarding government, it is a minister of God to you. Because God establishes all government authority. The government that is over us is a minister of God to you for good. Verse 5, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection to the government, not only because of wrath, that the government could come down on you, but also for conscience' sake. I like the translation of verse 5 from the New Living Translation. It says this, so you must obey the government for two reasons. To keep from being punished and to keep a clear conscience because all government has been established by God. Now, as I said, Jesus taught very, very clearly that we have a responsibility to government. But the New Testament gives us more details about that. In fact, the New Testament is clear about at least three responsibilities that we have to government, and I want to look at them today. The first responsibility we have to government is to pay taxes. Remember, he talked about the coin 
and in how it had Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription on it, which was evidence that he had authority over it. And here's what he was saying to those folks, and you have to remember that we talk about not having fair taxes. Listen, our taxes were nothing like the taxes that they had to pay. But as they paid taxes, they received benefits from the Roman government. They received great roads. The Romans had the best road system in all of ancient history. How did they pay for it? They paid for it through taxes. You received, if you were in that day and you were paying taxes, you received the benefit of protection by the Roman government. You had no fear at any time of some foreign nation showing up and attacking you because the Roman army was there. And it was the number one army in all of the world. We are to pay taxes because the government authority that exists has been established by God. And right here in Romans 13, it goes on to talk about that. Verse 7. It says, regarding government, render what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor. So when we have a responsibility to government, the first responsibility that we have is to pay taxes. And we're in a similar situation. As we pay taxes, we receive benefits. We have roads. How do the roads get paid for? We pay taxes. We have a national defense. We don't have to fret on a daily basis about things because we have a strong national defense. How's that paid for? It's paid for by taxes. We have fire and police protection. How is that paid for? It's paid for by taxes. We have a sewer system. Have you ever thanked God for a sewer system? How did we get it? Because we pay taxes. See, if we didn't pay taxes and we didn't have a sewer system, we would all be visiting this little hut outside of where we lived on a regular basis. But because we pay taxes, there's benefits that accrue to us. We have a sewer system. And what he's really saying is, listen, our responsibility to government is to pay taxes. We need to assume responsibility for things. Now, he, he never says that we have to agree with how the government is spending the money. And while in, in, in Jesus' day with the Romans, they really had no voice, we have a voice. In America, we have a voice we can express our vote. If we don't like how the government is doing things, we vote differently and we remove that government and we have a different government. But our responsibility, because every government that exists has been established by God, our responsibility to government is, number one, to pay taxes. Number two, our second responsibility to the government is to obey the laws. Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That means all of us. We are to obey the laws. Turn with me um, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, a little deeper into the New Testament. And we have another passage in the New Testament that unpacks this idea of our responsibility to government more fully. In particular, our responsibility to obey the laws of the government. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. 
He's writing to the believers, the followers of Jesus, and he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, whose reputation is on the line, God's reputation is on the line, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Anything left out there? Whether to a king as the one in authority, you know, the highest level of governmental leadership, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, whether it's the upper-level leader or the mid-level leaders. And then he says in verse 15, for such is the will of God. You know, there's only a handful of times in the Bible it says this is the will of God. This is one of them. It is the will of God in our response to government that we obey the laws. For such is the will of God that by doing right, in context, obeying the laws, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Our responsibility to government is to pay taxes and to obey the laws. Now, the only exception to that I have ever found in the Bible comes from Acts chapter 5, because what happens in Acts chapter 5 is God had given the command and the directive to Peter and John to preach the gospel. And the government comes along in Acts 5 and orders them to directly disobey what God had told them clearly to do. And so when we are ordered to directly disobey Scripture, we are no longer to obey the government and obey the laws. But that's the only exception. Jesus is teaching truth, and part of that truth is our responsibility to government. And the first part of that is we're to pay taxes. The second part is we're to obey the laws, and the third thing, this surprises a lot of people, is our responsibility to government is we're to pray for government. We're to pray for government. First Timothy chapter 2 says that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings are to be made for kings and for all in authority. Your city government, your state government, your federal government. Now, if we were going to take a snapshot of us as a whole group of people, we know what we would find out. That for many of us, what we really do is we complain and whine about our government. But we really don't pray for our government. And that is part of our responsibility. So Jesus, with this trick coming at him, teaches truth that has two prongs. The first prong is our responsibility to government. The second prong is our responsibility to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. And this, by the way, I think has special significance to those of us who have a relationship with the living God. Part of the truth he wants to remind us here is that we have a responsibility to God. You see, Jesus bled and died for us, and he rescued us from sin and judgment. 
But that doesn't mean I can now just live however I want to live. You remember how Jesus said on that coin is Caesar's image, and it points out that that coin ultimately then belonged to Caesar. And here's the idea. We are in God's image. We are his. And so we have a responsibility to God. And then you add to that that we've been bought with a price. We're not our own. You see, you're not just free to do your own thing and say, okay, I, you know, I like Jesus being my rescuer from sin and judgment, but I want to just live my life how I want to live my life. No, we have been created to know and to serve Jesus Christ. And men and women, every one of us has responsibility to God. In fact, we've all been given the title of steward in the New Testament, which was a common word. Everyone would know in those days what it meant. What it really means is someone who is a manager. And the idea of a steward is they would be given certain things to, to manage, but eventually they would have to report back about their management. And in Romans chapter 14, verse 12, it says that each one of us, that includes everybody, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We need to be reminded of that. We have a responsibility to God. And there's a day coming when Jesus is going to sit down with me and he's going to ask me, Bruce, how did you utilize your time, your talent, and your treasure for the kingdom of God? No, I can say, well, you know, I, you know, I had to do a lot of different things. I had to, uh, had to you know, earn money to make a living and I had to, to buy things and I had to pay for this and I had to have, raise a family and, and I had to do this and I had to have some fun doing that and, 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 and all that's good. That's all important. But he says, wait a minute now, because you are a manager and a steward, I just need to know how you, did you deal with your time and your talent and, and your treasure related to the kingdom of God? And one day you will answer the same question. Which leads us to the life response that I want us to talk about regarding these two truths, our responsibility to government and our responsibility to God. And I want to communicate this life response built around two questions for personal reflection. And again, I would encourage you to write these down. It's not just, oh, I hear it on Sunday morning and I don't think about it anymore. The idea is I want you to wrestle with these a little bit before the Lord. Here's the first personal question for reflection. Am I rendering to government what I have been called to do? Now, just look at that question for a moment. Am I rendering to government what I've been called to do? Now, you can answer that one of three ways. You could answer it no. You could answer it sometimes. Or you can answer it yes, consistently, I do. So think about that. Am I rendering to the government what I've been called to do? How about in the area of paying taxes? And we made a little joke about the infernal revenue service rather than the internal revenue service. And we think, well, taxes are unfair. I don't really want to pay them. Far more unfair in Jesus' day. He didn't say anything about, oh, you can get out of it because it's unfair. So how would you answer that? No, sometimes. Yes, consistently. How about obeying the laws? What would your answer be? No, eh, sometimes, or yes, consistently. 
And then this is the one I think that I think makes us feel most uncomfortable. How about our responsibility to government to pray for government? How would you answer that one? No, or yeah, sometimes, or yes, consistently. Second question for personal reflection. Am I rendering to God what I've been called to do? You know, we learn from Romans chapter 12 that we are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. So let me ask you the question this morning as we sit here. Who's really in charge of your life? Who's really in the driver's seat? Not last week, not last month, today. What does it mean to present ourselves to him as a living sacrifice? It really means that we're saying this to him. Whatever I do, I want to honor you. And remember, when we talk about rendering to God what we've been called to do, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. And there is a day coming if you know him, when he will sit down with you and he will say, could you just explain to me how you use your time and your talent to invest in my kingdom? Or he may say to you, tell me how you used your treasure to invest in my kingdom. And some of us would probably have to say, well, <laughs> you know, some, someday I'm going to give money to your kingdom, Lord. You know, uh, when I just make some more money, you know, when I really come into the money, you know, then I'll invest in your kingdom. Now he wants to know if we're doing it right now. Each one of us will give account of himself to God. How are you using your time, your talent, and your treasure to invest in his kingdom? Let me ask you this question. When is the last time you checked in with God and you said this to him? What do you want from me, Lord? What do you want from me? For some of us, maybe it's been way too long. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We thank you for the way that it's taught we thank you for these reminders that are so vital that we have a responsibility to government. The Bible tells us about it clearly. That we have a responsibility to you. The Bible tells us about it clearly. We would pray, Father, that we would be men and women who understand our responsibilities, that we could answer certain questions, not no or sometimes, but rather yes consistently for that would please Jesus. And God, we thank you that you are the anchor that we need in life. And we thank you for the opportunity that we have while we breathe on this planet to honor Jesus Christ. And we thank you that no matter what happens because of him, our future is secure. May we be pleasing to you in the choices we make. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.